Welcome to part two of Becoming the Person I Am Made to Be in Christ. This is a great statement by Henry Nouwen. Spiritual maturity is not knowing what to do with your whole life, but just knowing what to do next. Christ lives in the heart of a champion. And we welcome you back to the Code of Man this week. And so we're, we've made it all the way down to the end of verse number six, where today... Peter says that we're to add to our patience godliness. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I shared with you earlier this morning that the word that I have today on my heart, kind of a word for the day, is the word progress. And so I'd like to explain that. You know, a lot of times I I think people, and they don't have to be new Christians, it could be men and women who've been saved for a long time, but we get in our minds that that we ought to be at some state of at least relatively close to perfection. And so perfection gets in our head. Or we think that others think that we should be perfect. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Uh, We mess up and we just beat ourselves up over it. But perfection is not within our reach, at least not today. But what is within our reach is progress, that we can do a little better than we have done before. So... I was thinking about the word progress, and it's not a word that you'll find in the Bible. I mean, if you were to look up in the Bible the word progress, you won't find that English word. But the closest word in the New Testament is the Greek word peripatio, and that's fun to say. Do you want to try it? Peripatio. Yeah, everybody out there in Radio Land, say that together now. Peripatio. Sounds French. Yeah. But anyway, but what that word means, it means to walk the path. So... Just think about that for a moment. The word that's closest in the Bible to our English word progress is a Greek word that means to walk the path. Now, that's a very good and very encouraging thing. It's very simple and straightforward. In other words, what we understand from Scripture is that to make progress, we simply must stay on the path and take another step. Now, here's the thing. I looked this up. And I believe, if I remember correctly, this word is found 90 times in the New Testament. And of those 90 times, 89 times, it is translated as walk or walked. The only other time, and I'll show you that verse in just a moment, but it's translated a different word altogether. But, But the point I want to say is it's never run. It's never even implied that you're to be in a hurry. It's never that... You know, hey, you're behind, you need to catch up. Progress is simply stay on the path, walk, take the next step. Now, think about how that opens up our understanding to a verse like this, Mark chapter 7 and verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? 
So in other words, what the Pharisees were asking was, why are your disciples not making progress in the traditions of the elders? Now, where do we run into the most trouble in our conflicts within the church? It's when somebody's not living up to our expectations. Mm-hmm. We say, why are they not progressing in you know, what we deem as the right way? Yeah, the term that I hear a lot is, why are they not progressing in the faith? Mm-hmm. Which, there, there is merit if that phrase was actually being used the right way, but we typically use it as what you're describing, our traditions, our set expectations, this is what progressing in the faith should look like. And so you understand why Jesus would get a little bit perturbed by such a question. Yeah. You know, we read that and we don't get it. We, you know, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? And we don't, I mean, we, we get the connotation, but if we understand that they're actually saying, why are they not making progress? In other words, they're implying that this is the way that they should be doing this, and yeah. they're not doing it. And so let me give you a few more verses as to how this word is used. We're talking about making progress, but it's, it's translated as walk in the Scriptures. Romans 6, 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what does God want us to do? Make progress in our newness of life. Mm-hmm. Just make progress in it. You say, well, am I supposed to you know, just make progress? But I'm not where they are. Well, just make progress. But I don't even feel as strong as I did a week ago. Well, then make some progress. I mentioned to you earlier, when you think about this, and it's actually the word has a, it's got a more descriptive meaning. It means not only to walk in the path, but it, it literally is translated or means, would be a word that would mean to trample in the path. In other words, it's just to get in that path which has been laid out in front of you where others have walked and to just walk in it. And so what you know? What if you take a couple of steps backward? God says, step forward, just mm-hmm. make progress. And that's always the expectation. Now, how do we do that? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5, 16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, make progress in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Colossians 1.10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here's one more. Colossians 2.6, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So how am I to walk? I'm to walk in the new life. I'm to walk by faith. I'm to walk in the Spirit. I'm to walk worthy of the Lord. I am to walk in Christ Jesus. So take the word walk and think, make progress. That is what God is calling us to do. The one exception, I mentioned this earlier, the one exception to the translation of the word into the English walk is found in Hebrews 13, 9. But I think this gives us an even, even more understanding of what progress in the way is. Because here's what it says, Hebrews 13, 9. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. That's the word. Peripateo, have been occupied. So the idea of that word is, in a literal physical sense, is to walk, but the idea is to have your mind occupied with something. Now, he's, he's saying don't be like them, don't be occupied with all these traditions. Mm-hmm. But we understand that to make progress is to have ourselves occupied with God. Just be occupied with God. Be occupied with your new life in Christ. Be occupied with faith, with the Holy Spirit. Be occupied with pleasing the Lord. 
That is how you make progress. And, you know, anybody can do that. Any Christian can do that. Yeah, because, I mean, there we're just talking about the things that we are intentionally placing our focus on, what what is occupying our thoughts, what we are giving ourselves to, and... Um, there, there are no, there's no outside circumstances that that dictate that. As far as like, well, I'm just not naturally skilled or naturally gifted in that, or I'm not. No, God's not looking at what you're naturally skilled on. He's interested in what are you choosing to allow to be the all-consuming thought of your life. What are you doing with what you have? And that takes a lot of pressure of performance off. That takes off of the how do I match up with somebody else? Well, there is no comparison to anybody else because it's. It's just you, your thoughts, your decisions, your focus. So where are you at? And bringing all of that to God as a as a holy offering of yes. the of the self. Mm-hmm. And just to get to the end from here, um, kind of forecasting ahead, what you just said is one of the things that I wrote down in terms of how do I add this godliness to my life, and that is that we have to become, and I'll put it in this, this language here, but it has to come out of a life that is centered on God, a God-centered life, rather than a life in which we're trying to put God in it here and there throughout our day. Mm-hmm. But and, and look, you might be listening right now and say, well, see, there you go. I mean, that's me. I'm failing. Well, no, that's not failing. Don't think in those terms. Think progress. So if you're at the place right now where you're trying to put God in here and there through your day, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing that you're doing that. It's a bad thing to stay that way. Make progress in it where ultimately what we're looking for is a life centered in God. Now, I believe the language of this exhortation by Peter here that we've been studying is a language of ongoing progress. It is about increasingly moving into the nature of godliness and increasingly escaping from or taking flight from the corruption of the world. And that is what he says. Whereby, verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I, I mentioned to you before that we read that. We read it. It's old English. We apply modern English understanding, and we miss that the language there is that Peter is saying that as you make progress, as you increasingly partake of the divine nature, you by default are increasingly escaping the corruption that is in the world. And so as my appetite for God grows, my appetite for the world must diminish. The lust of the flesh has to yield to that hunger for God. That is what Peter is telling us. And then he then he takes us into this progress we've been studying here, this, uh, this becoming and list all these things that we're to add to our faith. So we're to number six today, godliness. We've already added virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and now godliness. So let me start with the question for you. All right. Define godliness for us. I think it's it's God God devotedness. I don't know if that's the right way, but it it's it's living my life with such an awareness and a devotion to God that everything that I do, every action, every every thought is filtered through the lenses of how does God view this? How does God consider this? What is his opinion on this? And it's just, it's having God in everything. To, to use a phrase that I used in our Sunday school class um, in our curriculum a while back, but it's having God in all of my boxes. Everything that I enter into that day 
God is in it. I'm not putting him in anything. He is already in it, and so he's just a part of every facet of my life. Yeah, we have no life without him. I like your definition, but I think you would agree with me. The reason I asked you to do it was because even as you're trying to define it, don't you find yourself having to think of, how can I really best explain this? Yes. And it's just one of those terms. And and I think it's probably it could be one of the most misunderstood words that's in this list of the divine nature progress that we're talking about. Yeah, because I think I think one of the reasons that it's hard is because I'm going against the reprog or I'm I'm reprogramming against the standard. Well, well, godliness is just doing what's right. Mm-hmm. It's it's doing the right thing, which obviously is is right. But that's a very ambiguous answer that doesn't really give a lot of. How do I do that? Yeah, a lot of the answers to that question define godliness come across as ambiguous and not necessarily intentionally. It's just it's a it's a, a difficult term, right? Yeah. So if we do nothing else, let's see if we can unpack a little bit about what the word means. Now, if you go to Strong's literal definition for godliness, he says piety. Now, I don't think that helps us very much because that's almost equally, if not more so, a hard word to define. And I think it's just one of those words, if you ask five people to define it, you'll get 20 definitions. Yeah. You know, But 15 times in the New Testament, this word is translated as godliness once as holiness, which I think is interesting. Now, obviously, the word holiness is found other places, and there's other um, Greek words for that. But at least you see there's a connection mm-hmm. there. The root word is Yosebus, and it means to be a reverent person. So the root word for godliness means to be a reverent person. Now, you said something earlier, and I don't remember exactly how you said it, but you'll remember when I say this. It's actually translated as devout, I mean, the, the root word to it. The root word to godliness is translated as devout. So we could think of devout is kind of the root of being a godly person. And it has the intended meaning of someone who worships, someone who shows honor to God and respects God in their life. Now, of course, we go to Webster. What does he say about this? Well, godliness comes from the term godly. Guess what he says? Piety. But then he goes on to say, it's belief in God and reverence for his character and laws. Now, listen to this. He then breaks down the definitions. He gives a couple of different things. But the first definition he gives underneath that is a religious life. Now, what that took me back to is some of the older writings of Christian literature. You won't see this very much anymore because the term religion or religious has such a negative connotation. But a lot of the old writers, even Kempis, Aquinas, and um, I'm trying to think of uh, maybe even J.C. Ryle, and that's the 1800s, but these guys would talk about a religious person. Or even they would use it as a noun, the religious like, the religious will do this, or to be a good religious, you will do this. Mm-hmm. We don't think in those terms anymore, but I think that's what Webster was after. Now, if we, if we took the word religious out and we said to be a godly person or to be a holy person, right, uh, we, we get an understanding. But, but Peter gives us some insight into this a little later in the chapter. If you go to chapter 3 of Second Peter and you look at verse number 11, I'm going to read down through these verses, and let's see if we can understand something of godliness here. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What things? Everything in the earth, all the temporary stuff, all the junk you own, it's all going to be burned up one day. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, 
So I want to say that one of the things that a godly person does is they live with a heart toward the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay, And because time won't allow us to break down every verse, we'll, we'll go to the next one, verse 13. Nevertheless, uh, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And so I think a godly person, Peter says, will pursue purity in their life, not perfection. Now, mm -hmm. now don't get me wrong. We are after perfection. We're striving unto perfection, but I don't lay that burden on myself that I have to expect me to be perfect as I am right now. Right. Perfection will come, but that's not the order of today. The order of today is progress. And that's what Peter says. Uh, I'm going to be looking to, to live a pure life. What did John say? Those that have this hope in them purify, purify himself, himself even yep. as he is pure. I won't read all that, but it just ends, verse 18 even, just talks about growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. So a godly person is pursuing that knowledge of God, just to grow in that walk with Christ. A godly person is somebody that is is practicing what Jesus has left for us to do. And, you know, we use the phrase incorrectly, practice makes perfect. It would actually be far better to recoin that to practice makes progress. The more that we, yeah. the more that we practice in something, the more... Yeah, the more that we're going to improve it, we're going to progress along in it. If we take that definition of our Christian life, that practice makes progress, the more that I practice Jesus' teaching, I'm going, to I'm going to progress in my faith and develop more. That's a whole lot easier to attain, and not easier like because we're looking for the easy way out, but I guess it's a more realistic goal of, hey, yes, this, well, this a, is attainable. And it's a fresh way of applying Hebrews 12.1, lay aside yes. every weight. Yes. Because it's a weight when we put that on ourselves to think we've got to be something we're not capable of being right. and that God never expected out, out right. of us. Well, Paul agrees with, with the things. I mean, like I said, if we could have broke down more of those verses, we'd see all the things Peter gives us. But just listen to how Paul says it, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, so by default, he's talking about godliness here, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's pursuing purity, right? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us uh, from all iniquity, purifying to himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. It's kind of like the same thing. Peter and Paul both are giving us... So you really could lay out a pretty good, solid biblical outline of what godliness at least produces in a person's life. And part of it is a desire to live holy, a desire to live pure, and a longing for the, for the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, and, and a desire to grow in the knowledge of God. So those three things, at least we could say, are a part of, of godliness. And so with that in mind, um, I, I do think about... Um, and there's so much more we could say trying to define it, but as we come to the end of our time today, I think at the end of it all, godliness is a life of spiritual-minded sanctification where we actually live and conduct ourselves as if all of life is sacred and God is everything. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's kind of my summary of what I think from looking at this. Uh, I want to say that one more time. That godliness is a life of spiritual-minded sanctification where we actually live and conduct ourselves as if all of life is sacred and God is everything. So then, the final question of the day is always, how do I add to my steadfast, selfless, substantive, superior belief of God this quality of godliness, which we will say for the sake of the S's, sacredness? 
So to my faith, how do I add sacredness to my steadfast, selfless, substantive, superior belief of God? And I have four things wrote down. So let me, let me get these to you before we close out the week here on the broadcast. I think, by the way, that when we definitely by now, maybe even back at temperance, but definitely by now, we're moving into that greater understanding of the role of spiritual disciplines in our life if we're going to become the person we're made to be in Christ. So the first thing I would say is what? Diligence. Giving all diligence, putting forth the necessary effort. I won't say anything more about that one today, but just to be clear, it's always going to take that. Practice makes progress. Practice requires effort. Yeah. You know, showing up. Number two, I wrote this down, and this is that God-centered thing. Reorient your day around God. If you want to be a godly person, um, you don't have to be a monk. You don't have to be a superstar. You don't have to be the uh, world's greatest evangelist. Just reorient your day around God. Get up in the morning to be with God. Do lunch with God. Radio with God. You know, whatever. Just reorient your day around God and stop trying to fit God into your day. Okay, That is a way to, to add godliness to your faith. The third thing I wrote down is that we need to work out and then fine-tune and then follow our rule of life. Now, I've mentioned rule of life a few times, and we're getting ready to do Way of Holiness Conference, and I'm uh, intending to, to lead some discussion and teaching on that. But if I were to give it simply, rule of life is there is a way you go about doing your day. Is it working or is it not working in terms of helping you to draw closer to God? So you ask yourself a couple of questions. What am I doing that is working? That's part of a good rule of life, and I need to keep that. What am I doing that is harming or doling me spiritually, that I need to get rid of. So you see, what I'm doing is I'm working out the way I'm living my life, and I'm then going to be fine-tuning it, and I'm going to be living into that. A rule of life is a living document for you. It is going to change. It's going to alter with seasons and stages of life, but you've got to put the effort into that. Number four, I would say to increase godliness, you need to gather some accountability by way of true Christian community. You need people in your life that are going to help you to be true to this desire to be a godly person. It's hard to do it by ourselves. I really want to say it's impossible to do it by ourselves because I think God has designed it to work this way, that we need one another. We need Christian brotherhood. We need fellowship. But gather some accountability. Actually invite people into your spiritual life. Get some people you can trust. It may be somebody you're not even sure you like right now. But if you think that they're a spiritually-minded person, a godly person, invite them in and, and get some accountability there. And I think that will help us to increase in godliness and in becoming the person we are made to be in Christ. Elwood P. Dowd, just to uh, introduce today's radio broadcast. You know, that would be a great—if we were, had an old call-in show— I would love right now to say in the next, you know, in the next three, no, boy, it'd be so hard today with Google, wouldn't it? Yeah. Those of you with real integrity who won't Google it, but just know by heart who Elwood P. Dowd is, call us in the next 60 seconds. The first one to call through is the winner, and you'll get something, and whatever if, money AP's got in his pocket. Oh, I was going to do something like a real, you know, radio show, like 
we got a T-shirt or a, a water bottle or you know things with like our we have logo. Some of those, yeah. we do. That is more realistic than the money in a my wallet. A way of holiness water bottle. But anyway, so uh, Elwood P. Dowd, as I'm going to reference here in just a moment, but the character from the movie Harvey, and I was telling you about it so the audience knows where this is coming from, and I mentioned how Elwood is kind of a Christ-like character in the movie, except for the fact of the. You know, the imaginary bunny and, and the, the drinking, right? Yeah. Which, you know, depending on where you are on things, you know, Jesus turned water to wine and all that kind of stuff. But we won't get into that debate. The Pharisees did call him a wine bibber and a glutton. They did. And that was, but that's the thing with Elwood that I was getting ready to tell you before we started is I don't think Elwood was an alcoholic or had the problem. I think it was that he was such a genuinely good, kind man that everybody else in the world around him thought, there's something wrong with this guy. This guy's got to be plastered. Yeah, that's it. He's on something. Which, I, which you know, just to think about, knowing what we're studying today, to think about what would you give to be the, that kind of person in the crazy world we live in now, to be so genuinely good and kind that people looked at you and said, ah, that, that, he's on something. See, I used to think that that was what... Um, Nathaniel was known for when it's when Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. But after growing in my understanding of what guileless means, Nathaniel would have been somebody that would have been difficult to be around because he's just on like, this is just what's in my mind and mm-hmm. I'm I'm not gonna pull any punches. And sometimes that can be difficult to be around. Yeah, and and, and I don't even know that he was a puncher. You know, yeah, it that was would just, be the, the great thing. Yeah, there, there was no harm or malicious intent, or I'm just going to tell you what I think, and you can deal with it. It was just... Well, I'm going to share a quote from Harvey in a moment, but I actually did. I actually read through a lot of the quotes from the movie this morning when I was pulling this up to paste it into my notes, and I told uh, my wife, I said, I, I really need to see this movie again. I mean, it would be therapy for my soul to, to just some of the things that he says in the movie, and I've seen it several, several times through the years, but it's been a while. But, uh, yeah, just genuine, what we would call genuine goodness. In fact, really, it would be a great case study for this entire series from Second Peter chapter 1. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance patience, to patience godliness, and where we are today, and to godliness brotherly kindness. Now, let's just uh, start out like this, or... Let's get started now. All right. Um, Friday, I had a word that I shared, and that word was progress. And I felt like that was a helpful word, still is. Still thinking about that word. Still shared it with someone, even this morning. But we are simply to be making progress, and that, and that, that is what God is looking for in this journey of becoming the person that we're made to be in Christ. And so there's no pressure to worry about perfection. That is something that that comes by the time we've ran the race and it is completed when we enter into the presence of the Lord. Well, this morning I have this word in my heart and it comes, it wasn't like this, this didn't come the same way. This wasn't from like morning prayer per se, or, uh, or just like where I started, but it was, it was through thinking about the, uh, the, the study today in this, this phrase, whatever brotherly kindness. And I thought, you know, pleasant, because here's the thing I had in mind. How would you define brotherly kindness because it seems so foreign? But pleasant seems like the right kind of word. It seems to fit where we're headed. Even as we draw to the close of this study and, and, and of understanding that we're trying to become the person we're made to be in Christ, the last two qualities are brotherly kindness and charity. 
And as I think about what those are implying, it makes me think about the sort of person Jesus would have been. Now, we think about things Jesus did. We think about who he is in terms of our Savior, our Lord. We think of his power to heal, all those things. But just to stop and think about the kind of person Jesus would have been. And I think pleasant would fit. Now, here's the thing about that. Pleasant in our society today sounds soft, doesn't it? Yes. You know, he's a pleasant guy. Very, a, very sissified. Yeah, it's almost, almost effeminate. Yeah, it, it's almost like a, like a derogatory comment that's masked in a compliment. Oh, he's just a pleasant fellow. Which yeah, means, we don't want him on our team. Yeah, you guys can have him. Yeah, yeah he's pleasant. He's, he's a pleasant guy. He's a nice guy to have around. Another Andy reference. And you say, she, oh, she's nice. She's real nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know Thelma Lou, don't you? What's well, her cousin? She's nice. Bless but, her heart. You know, yeah, pleasant. Yeah, it's a pleasant fellow. So we don't really want him around, but hey, you know, we can tolerate him. Can't say anything bad about him, but don't really have a lot of good to say either. Well, this won't help. Our English word pleasant comes from the French word plaisant. Oh. And that doesn't sound any better, does it? No. But when you get down to the meaning of the word, where it, where it comes from and what it actually is saying... It means pleasing. It means grateful to the mind or to the senses or agreeable. As we might say, a pleasant journey. Or this is pleasant weather. We would say that another way, like I'm really enjoying this weather. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about what it means to be a pleasant person, it would be the kind of person that someone would say, you know, I enjoy being with that person. They are really nice to have around. They yeah. please me. They, they're a pleasure to have around. I'm glad they're in my life. Yeah. Uh, it means cheerful, enlivening, um, humorous. In other words, we would say, boy, he's pleasant company. Or, as we said before, he's a pleasant fellow. So in its, in its meaning, its origin, the way it used to be used, it really had some meat to it. Even the synonyms, gratifying, agreeable, cheerful, good-humored, enlivening, lively, merry, sportive, humorous, amusing, witty. I read all that, and my wife was walking through the room this morning, and I said, you know what? I actually could be a pleasant person <laughs> with some work. I mean, I have some of those qualities, but here's what happens, and this is both confession and teaching at the same time, and maybe some little some self-revelation live and in color here. But I think what happens is, and we're still talking about brotherly kindness. That's where we're at. But I think what happens is life, life is tough. Life hits us. It beats us up. It knocks us around. We get bitter taste. We get scars. We carry bruises and cuts. And, and that part of us that really is so vibrant in children, when we become adults, gets lost. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about the scene. We were going to reference it. It was Friday or Thursday. We never did for time's sake. But I was going to reference the scene from Rocky Balboa. And that great moment where Rocky is giving that speech to his son. His son is bitter and angry because he feels like he's always grown up, never been able to succeed because he's had to live in the shadow of his famous father, the world champion boxer. Man, folks, if you've never seen that scene, you don't even have to watch the whole movie. I mean, I recommend the movie. It's a powerful movie. But especially with in terms of aging, you know, and dealing with some of the, the grief of life. But that one scene, you can find it. All you know how to use your phones and look up you know, movie clips. But that one scene of Rocky giving that speech to his son is well worth a study and a reflection on. But that's what happens there. You see that. Here's a guy that's just, life has been hard. 
and and Rocky's the the other side of it. He's showing us here's a guy who life has been hard, but he's still trying to find that way to be free and to still be the guy he's always been, which is one thing I like about the Rocky Balboa character. He is this he's this super strong guy, relentless, but he is gentle. Mm-hmm. He is he's a good man. And that's the kind of the kind of, you know, kind of qualities that I want in my life as a man. So anyway, that's not the movie reference we were talking about earlier, but it's Elwood P. Dowd from Harvey. Now, this is the line that we're about to play for you that I think captures the essence of what it means to live with, with brotherly kindness. Doctor, I, I, you know, years ago, my mother used to say to me, she'd say, in this world, Elwood, you must be, she always called me Elwood. In this world, Elwood, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Well, for years I was smart. I recommend pleasant. You may quote me. That is a powerful, powerful line. I mean, we can dissect this one quote from a movie, but I, I think even how he pauses when he says, in this world, Elwood, you must be, and then he pauses, he says, she always called me Elwood. I think, what patience? I mean, this guy's not in a hurry. Yeah. And honestly, there's a part of me, if I'm honest, that says, I don't know that I could hang out with Elwood. Like, he would drive me nuts. Like, why, why did you need to explain what your mother always called you? Of course she called you Elwood. What else would she call you? That's <laughs> yeah. your name, ain't it? Just get on with the story. I got somewhere to be, man. Elwood has ruthlessly eliminated hurry from his life. Yes, he has. And I, I tell you, you, you got to read, just read some of the quotes. And I know if you've never seen the movie, they won't mean as much, but the name of the movie is Harvey. A lot of the listeners already have picked up on what we're talking about. And Jimmy Stewart plays Elwood P. Dowd. And he even talks about how Harvey has overcome, uh, how uh, there's this great line where it's like Harvey has overcome, he's talking about his imaginary rabbit friend. He's overcome like anger and all this stuff. And he says he's even reached the point where he's overcome objections. <laughs> like he's just going to be who he is. And, and Harvey's sort of this further reflection of who Elwood is. You know, it's like he makes this statement in the movie where he says, you know, I've just come to the place where I have a good time and enjoy myself wherever I am and whoever I'm with. I read that quote to my wife this morning. <laughs> she said, that doesn't sound like you. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't. And you know what? I, I recognize that. But as much as I have to be honest and say that a guy like Elwood seems like he'd be hard to be around, it's only because I've got a lot of junk in my heart and my mind that needs to be corrected because he really does, I think, reflect the nature of who Jesus would have been. Now, we know the fierce side of Jesus, Mm -hmm. but Jesus had this pleasantness about him that you would say this is truly a kind person. Yeah. That's uh, the way I wanted to introduce the idea of brotherly kindness today. So you're welcome, everybody. Kind of sounded more like a Friday fun day intro. Well, not really, because it wasn't a a jocular reference. No. Or jovial. Yeah. Either one. Whichever. I mean, I didn't know we were playing sports, too. (laughs) Yeah. But if there's one thing that is a secondary benefit of Daybreak Devotions, it is that you will increase your capacity for um, what we're coining as spiritual watching. Oh, yeah. Spiritual watching. You, when you're watching a t- TV or a movie, you're, you're looking for the Lord in it. Yep. So brotherly kindness. I've already read the verse, but to godliness, he says, add brotherly kindness. Now, before we go any further into it, and maybe we've already dissected this question, but I said earlier just how 
How foreign to our modern society this sounds. Brotherly kindness. I mean, does that not sound like something from a fiction novel? Yeah, and I think part of the reason that it's become kind of lost in translation or whatever is because, you know, we have a city here in our good old U.S. of A. that literally means the city of brotherly love. And it's one of the most awful, rude, just dog-eat-dog cities in the entire world. And so it's kind of become, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Yeah, they'll throw beer bottles at you in a football game if you're in there for the wrong team. And and so it's kind of like, you know, brotherly kindness. That's nice. What fairy tale world are you living in? That's, That's unrealistic. Well, they do have a Rocky Balboa statue in Philadelphia, though. They do. I think even bringing it into the terms of the church and our culture of church, it's not that we hate each other. It's not that we want to be angry with each other. There is something inside of every believer that says, you know, I want to love my brothers, my sisters. But I think the way we do it is not to throw things at each other, like literally. But we live with this, these, these masks of niceness that's not genuine. Yeah. And we, so, so it's, like, it's like we don't trust that this is a real thing. That's the word that I was going to use. We don't trust one another. And a lot of it is because we, do, we don't know our own selves. Or we know our own selves, but we don't trust the other people in our church with our real selves because we're afraid of the judgment or the rejection or the ridicule and all of that kind of stuff that will come. And so, yeah, it, it's, all, it, it's, it's all a masquerade. Well, and I just, I just wrote this note down because I think where it comes from, if we understand, if we believe, and I do, you know, I, I think about the folks in our church, and I think if you go across the board in our church, no matter what level of commitment the people have, whether they just come to Sunday morning service or they're here all the time, I think everybody genuinely wants to love each other. Everybody here genuinely wants to care for one another. But what combats this in modern society is, is the, the same three things we talked about probably two or three years ago coming out of the COVID thing where we talked about these three dangerous uh, factors, isolation, fragmentation, and distraction. Mm-hmm. Isolation is so huge now, and that is counter to brotherly kindness and brotherly love because it literally is the opposite of what has to happen. When I pull myself away, so really... If all I have is I come to church and I want to get along with everybody, but really all I have is this this couple of hours a week that we're together, I don't know you. Right. I know very little about your life. And so it's still a lot of isolation between us. And then the fragmentation of living in a, a society that is so full of hardship and trauma and difficulty and bad news, and, and, and then that naturally, which fragmentation means my mind is scattered. I'm, I'm over here. I can't be present to you because I'm over here and I'm thinking about tomorrow. And I'm, I can't give you very much of my heart because I've got to conserve so much of the rest of my life for this group over here and this group over here. That's fragmentation. And all of that has the component of distraction in it because I'm allowing myself to be pulled mm-hmm. to all the voices and the things happening around me. Makes brotherly kindness seem so foreign to our time. Because let me just say this. The definition of kindness, you cannot do this when you're living in isolation, fragmentation, and distraction. Here's the definition. Goodwill, benevolence, that temper or disposition which delights in contributing to the happiness of others, which is exercised cheerfully 
in gratifying their wishes, supplying their wants, or alleviating their distresses. It is a benignity of nature. And that means that benign, benign, benignity of nature, well, that's a word we don't use much, but it literally means that that is the disposition, the natural disposition. But listen to this, kindness ever accompanies love is the sentence that Webster put at the end of his, his definition. Kindness ever accompanies love. So obviously, if we look at the way Peter lays this out, and to brotherly kindness, the next thing will be charity. But in other, but as I look at that definition, the reason I say that's difficult is because this is actually giving and taking time and deliberately doing for other people. And to do that, you have to lay yourself aside. Now think about where you're able to do that best. In my home. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to do that for my wife, my children. I think about people, you know, we spend a lot of time together. People that you really get to know, you do this. You will say, you know what, I'm, I'm happy to do something that will make that will benefit you. Mm-hmm. In the church, I know if you have a church of 200, it's hard to get to know everybody that way. But to have the spirit of that means that I'm ready for anybody at any time, even if it's not, they're not the people that I'm always around and always with. So, I mean, praying for brotherly kindness to be a spirit in us is a big thing. Absolutely. And that, I think the praying and the seeking after it also increases my awareness of the need for it. You know, if I'm asking God to give it to me, then that also means he's going to make me more aware of what it's going to take for me to acquire it. Oh, shoot. <laughs> you, mean, you mean to get right, I'm going to have to go through some treatment process? Yeah. Oh, man. Isn't it always like that? But by this step in the process, you know, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience. You've been going through it. Well, we, that's the thing. That's another thing to make a note of. This is how God works. God doesn't just work little magic charms in our life and, like, turn us from pumpkin to, ki- to carriage. Right. Now, it is a process. God is in the business of maturing us, not just simply poofing us into being. I, that's why I like the, the wording of Romans 12, too. Don't be conformed to the world, you know, like put into a mold and stamped out and boom, instantaneous, but be transformed. And the transformation is is a process. It takes time. It takes some molding. It takes, you know, there's steps to transformation. Conformity is, you know, you're being forced and compressed into something. And and if we see the Christian life that way, again, that goes back to taking off the pressure of perfection. I can give myself the grace to know that I'm not what I'm going to one day be, but that I'm also not what I used to be, and I'm right on God's schedule. It's okay. Let's just keep going in the process. We ought to be able to take some consolation in knowing that we are more Christ-like now than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. Even though, as you just said, being more Christ-like than we've ever been raises our awareness of just how unchrist-like we still <laughs> are. Yeah, it just goes with it. You said you said it earlier. The uh, the word brotherly kindness is actually in the Greek the word Philadelphia. And we often think of that as brotherly love, but they are one and the same. It comes from a combination of phileo and adelphos, essentially to be very fond of someone who is of the same womb as you are. Now, in terms of the church, what, it's, what we're being taught is that we are to love and be fond of one another because we are of the same Father. We have been born of the same Lord into the same family. But I think there's another issue at stake here. I believe what this brotherly kindness is moving us toward and... It is the next step 
coming from patience and godliness and working toward charity. And what it is moving us toward is a deep life of unity. Mm-hmm. I think that is the, the thing, because brotherly kindness or brotherly love is a New Testament expression of Psalm 133 and verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And wouldn't you know it? I received this morning a devotional reading from Henry Nowen, and let me read a portion of this. Guess what the topic was? Brotherly kindness? Well, unity. Oh. But listen to what he offers as a true way to unity as we're sitting here exploring this idea of brotherly kindness. So let me read this. It's a little long, but let me, let me get it. I think follow with me. You'll see where it leads to. Jesus prays for unity among his disciples and among those who through the teaching of his disciples will come to believe in him. He says, may they all be one just as, Father, you are in me and I in you. These words of Jesus reveal the mystery that unity among people is not, first of all, the result of human effort, but rather a divine gift. Unity among people is a reflection of the unity of God. A true experience of unity is a sense of giftedness. While unity satisfies our deepest need, it cannot be explained by what we say or do. There exists no formula for unity. When Jesus prays for unity, he asks his Father that those who believe in him, that is, in his full communion with the Father, will become part of that unity. I continue to see in myself and others how often we try to make unity among ourselves by focusing all our attention on each other and trying to find the place where we can feel united. But often we become disillusioned, realizing that no human being is capable of offering us what we most want. Such disillusionment can easily make us become bitter, cynical, demanding, even violent. Jesus calls us to seek our unity in and through him. When we direct our inner attention, not first of all to each other, but to God to whom we belong, then we will discover that in God we also belong to each other. Boy, that's the end of quote. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I read that this morning, knowing we were coming in here to do this, I said, Lord, that's, that's the answer. Because you want to summarize that? It's Jesus. Yeah. I need to focus my heart more and more on Jesus. Now, this is not new information. The thing is how easy it is for us to forget it. I want unity, and so I set about trying to make it happen. And what that ultimately amounts to is me demanding it from other people. Sort of like saying, now we're going to get along around here and you're going to like it or else. (laughs) And that's what he described right there, and it is accurate. You know, we start looking around and saying, why can't we all just get along? You know, why can't you just stop it? Yep. Right? And and, and, and what we've done is we've turned our attention on each other to, to fulfill something that is a deep desire inside of us for oneness that will only be found by turning our heart on Christ. And so the answer or the way, the way to abiding in brotherly kindness is to fix my heart on Christ more and more and more and deeper and deeper. And, it, it, and, and when I have in my life this awareness that I'm struggling to find unity with certain people, the answer to that is that is an area of my life that I need to take into a deeper place with the Lord. Yeah. What I heard as you read that is a lot of what I've been even thinking over and and reading in my own life. If we're going to have unity, we have to focus on what unites us rather than focusing so much on what 
divides us. You ask the average person, what do you believe? And they're going to give you their doctrinal statement. And basically their doctrinal statement consists of, these are the things that separate me from other denominations, even other churches within my own stripe, because this is my core beliefs. Obviously, we, we, there are differences and things like that. But the reason that I feel disunity with so many other people is because I'm looking at how do they differ from me? How do they, where do they stand that's different than me? Well, now all of a sudden I'm fragmented from them. Instead, if I were to look more, what do we agree on? Where, where are we united? Where do they stand on Jesus? Well, now all of a sudden my attention is given more towards the thing that brings us together and then the other second and third things that we that we list out, they do they do play an an important part and they do matter, but they matter far less because my most of my attention is given towards Jesus. I don't have the time to go through any particular list of how to add this to our faith and the rest of it, but I didn't actually list it out the same way this time. And I'll just offer this to the listener. There's really only a handful of verses in the Bible, in the New Testament, that use this word Philadelphia. There's variations of Philadelphia, but the exact word that we're studying here from 2 Peter chapter 1, let me list them, and, and I want you to read them as a listener. This will be a great thing to look at. Romans 12.10, um, and by the way, it's important to note that comes after Romans 12.1 and 2. It's mm-hmm. in that great context. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Hebrews 13.1, and I'll quote that when it's short, let brotherly love continue. And then Peter gives us another one in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, and I'll end with that today. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And that brings us today back to verse number 7, wherein Peter says, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And so we will be studying on the topic of charity today and how we add that to our brotherly kindness, and all the way back to our foundation of faith or belief in God. So if all of these are added on top of the foundation of faith, then we have thus far, and again, this is kind of putting all these in, just using words that begin with S, not because I think everybody will remember them, but just another way of saying it. But uh, but I, I the way I've termed this kind of using words that start with an S is thus far we have a going back now, back up the line from brotherly kindness back, we have a sensitive. Now, I want to explain that word because that word has connotation to it. You know, I just don't want to be thought of as a, I don't want people to think I'm sensitive. Well, by sensitive, I mean we're talking brotherly kindness, and I mean to be a caring person who is tuned into Christ first, which then allows us to be able to focus on uh, being gracious and kind and considerate to others. So we have a sensitive sacred, steadfast, selfless, substantive, superior belief of God. And that is what we're working on when we talk about becoming the person we're made to be in Christ. And so it's not just elementary living. It's not just being at that level of, well, I believe on Jesus. I ask Jesus into my heart. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven when I die. That is wonderful. But we're not to live there. We have some responsibility here. We're to be adding to that faith. And so before we dive into charity today, I don't know if you've thought about this, but as you look at this list of of virtues, we'll call them, what is the one that's missing that is probably one of the most commonly recognized Christian virtues? It's humility. Yeah. And that just occurred to me as I was thinking on this list before 
uh, radio today of how even though that humility is one of the probably, well, in some circles, it's one of the most commonly recognized Christian virtues. We think about, you know, a Christian person should be a humble person. But uh, it's not on this list. But as I consider uh, all that, that, that this does include, you know, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and even into charity, its overall effect is actually to bring us into humility. Because I, I think of, of when I see this and what all, as we've studied it, just... You know, we, we said this before, it, it, it awakens hope in us that we are becoming this person, but it also uh, raises this awareness that we're not that person. And I thought of what Kempis says in The Imitation of Christ, and he's talking about how we can become so agitated and impatient with others because of all their faults and flaws. But he says, Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. And that is exactly the effect that I think this should have. Oh, it's one of the effects that this should have on us. Mm-hmm. It should make us a more humble person who is more gracious toward others as we consider uh, this, this perfect image of what being in the divine nature is all about. Well, let's talk charity. Agape, that is the word. That's the Greek word. And it really, it's really the divine nature of what we call love. In other words, love is a pretty common term. But what distinguishes even even what distinguishes agape from the other uh, maybe three or four words in the New Testament that are used and translated as love, what what distinguishes agape or sets it apart from those other forms of love is that it is in its essence goodwill. It is the it is a it is a benevolence toward other people. So it is a very selfless type of love in the sense that it is not about getting. It is. It is. Seems to be fair to say that it is about a giving of the self because it is a desire to do good for. It is a willful delight in another person, and so it's not the idea of the way we talk when we say "I love pizza." Mm-hmm. Well, we don't actually um, wish pizza well. We wish pizza to be eaten, and so therefore we cannot agape pizza. We cannot love pizza. But we can love others when we are wishing them well and doing them well and choosing what is best for them, even if it doesn't feel like the best thing to them. Mm-hmm. And so that's the understanding of agape love. Now let's eliminate all the things that agape is not. So I wrote down three things, and, and maybe there's more that could be added. But it's not a feeling. All right? And so uh, when we think about love in general, we always talk about this, but specifically agape which is the divine essence of love. It's not a feeling. Emotions are often associated with love, but are not in themselves love or loving. It's also not an action. Now, I will be the first to say that for years I used to teach this. I used to say when I would teach in, when I was a missionary with Rock of Ages and we would do juvenile uh, prisons or we would do like alternative schools where you had like students that were in trouble and we would go in and teach character from a Bible-based standpoint, I would make that statement. It was part of the lesson. We say love is not an emotion. It's an action. You know, it's something you do. But here's what we mean when we say it's not an action, to correct that or to, to say that differently. I can actually do things to people and for people that I care very little for. So agape is not the action. It's not, it's not action in itself. Like emotion, 
action can come forth from agape. But agape is something more than what I'm doing. The third thing I wrote down is agape is not intention. And by that we simply mean well-meaning and well-wishing never loved anybody. I can have all the intentions in the world of being there, of helping, of caring, and never do it. Mm-hmm. And so just because I feel things or because I do things or because I have good intentions or loving intentions does not make me a person that has agape in my life. So then, what is it? That's the question we have to answer. And I think that one word probably summarizes it best. Well, and that might be an overstatement, but I think it can come back to choice. Mm-hmm. Choice is probably a good word for agape because agape is not desire or delight alone. And often we think of that. When we think about loving someone, we think of cherishing them. We say, man, I just want to be with them or I love, you know, they delight my heart. All of which is wonderful. It's good. But it is when desire is surrendered to God that it becomes a choice to do, to think, to act, feel, whatever, that which is best for the person. And that's where I want to pick up a quote by Dallas Willard, who I've referenced a few times in this series because he really is a good, uh, a really good source for understanding this passage in particular. Now, I don't have any reference I could give as far as like go to this book or go to this place, but just he, he has in many places referenced and talked about these things and And you just know, like, he's got something to say about this. So in terms of love, Willard says, The nature of love is that it seeks what is best. That is why it enables a person to refrain from hating their enemy, which they might very well want to do, and to seek what is good for them, along with all others involved. Love, then, is a condition of the will embedded in all fundamental dimensions of the human personality. He says a lot of words. Yes, he does. (laughs) It is not something you choose to do, but what you choose to be. Yeah. That's, the, that's, that's it right there. It is not something you choose to do, but what you choose to be. And so love is really the divine nature of God. That's what we're talking about when we talk about add to your faith and all the rest, charity. We're actually saying, in a, in a sense, add to all of this that ultimate person personality, the ism, the is that is God. Yeah, Add that to your faith. So if we think and we break down everything that, that is, you've just unpacked, it does fly so counter to what we have been taught both directly and indirectly about love. Well, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. You know, we don't control who we love. We just kind of fall in love and, and all of this different stuff. And that's in no way, shape, or form any of the display of how God loves people, it, it was absolutely a deliberate choice. He chose and, and enacted his will that I'm going to love mankind. I'm going to love this individual. I'm going to do this because this is what I'm going to do. And it is with that mentality that we are instructed to live as well. That's 1 Corinthians 13. That's the That's the charity passage. It's all about enacting our will. And, you know, to go through all of the different things that we can do and the actions and speak with tongues and uh, all of the different awesome things, but to do it without enacting our will of love for that individual that we're doing it for, 
it's all empty and in vain. And I think it's why we've got so many angry Christians. And the opposite is true, too. So you can go do all those things without love and it mean nothing, but you can go just be with a person in love and do nothing yeah. and minister to them. Yeah. Because you said earlier, you said, God says, I'm going to do this because this is what I choose to do, but he chooses to do it because it is who he is. Mm -hmm. So it is out of the being that the doing is done. And so this, again, Peter has given us here the divine nature to which we are to be partakers of. That's renovation year point three for our NBC folks that are following well, right along. We reference that a lot. But it, it's it's so oft neglected. Because again, we have hammered so much the do, the do, the do, the do's and don'ts. Everybody knows this is the do's and don'ts of the Christian life. And we have forgot the most essential part of all of it. The you know, being. What if we went back through all the things that have defined our faith tradition? The the core biblical things. What if we took the Ten Commandments, and rather than just focusing on thou shalt and thou shalt not, we dug into the why of thou shalt and thou shalt not. Mm -hmm. We dug into the essence of the kind of person that God is saying that we are to become. Yep. Not just that we did or didn't do something, but that we are the kind of person that will naturally do or not do those things because we are in God. Yes, And that is, that is, that is the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. That is what I have come to appreciate about the Beatitudes and the understanding of the Beatitudes is that this is about who we are in the kingdom of God in Christ. It's not a list of things we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't say, go mourn so you'll be blessed. He yeah. said, you're blessed. Essentially, you could say, you're blessed even though and when and no matter how much you mourn, because in the kingdom of God, you are going to be comforted. Mm-hmm. And so the people outside the kingdom of God are not blessed. They don't have beatitude because they are not going to be comforted. And it's all about who we are becoming. So, uh, boy, when we get sidetracked, I like when we get sidetracked that way. Yeah. Actually, I guess it wasn't sidetracked. We're just fleshing this thing out. But you mentioned 1 Corinthians 13, right? Mm -hmm. So let's go there. You look at 1 Corinthians 13, we're talking about this charity, and we just talked about all the things that it is not and what it is. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. All the way down to verse number 8 that says, Charity never faileth. Now, try the Christian school exercise or the Bible college exercise where we're told that we're to take our name and put it in the place of charity. Now, if we do that, what do we get? Listener, you look at those verses right now and put your name in there. I'll call you John and Mary. John suffereth long and is kind. Mary envieth not. John vaunteth not himself, is not puffed up. Mary doth not behave herself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. John rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, and beareth all things, and believeth all things, and hopeth all things. And John and Mary never fail. So what do we get when we do that? Conviction. Discouragement <laughs> and a sense of good night. But do this. And again, I got to give credit to Dallas Willard on this. This is this is where I heard it from probably two, three years ago. Is put God's name in place of charity or Jesus in place of charity. Then what do you get? Well, you get nothing but encouragement and hope and blessing. Jesus suffereth long and is kind. Jesus, Jesus envieth not. Jesus never 
fails, right? I think we got a song by that title. Sure do. <laughs> so, I mean, it changes everything when we understand basically what is the premise of the Bible, which is that agape is not only the love of God, we know that God is agape. So to add to agape, to or to add agape to our faith, is to add God in the highest order. It is to really reach the supreme level of every other attribute that's been mentioned in this text. It is the highest virtue. It is the highest knowledge, the highest so forth and so on. Because John, 1 John 4, 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God is agape. Not not God loves or God defines love or God controls love. God is love. There, It is to say God is agape, agape is God. I mean, I don't even know that many Christians have ever thought about that in that way before. No, because I think we, we, we still define and, and default to the emotion or the, the quality of love rather than the fact that it is a substance that, Started to say that comprises God, but 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 it's more of like an intrinsic quality. Like you cannot separate yeah. well, him. Well, we we use the term attributes in in theology, right? Yeah. Like holy, God is holy, but it's like it's like the essence of God which emanates from Him, and it would not exist if it were not God's essence emanating into the world. Yes. And I, you know, we were talking about watching the Chosen series and re- rewatching. Um, I don't remember which episode and which season, but. There's the uh, there's the the younger Pharisee Shamil or whatever who comes and approaches Nicodemus and basically challenges like you know this teaching by Jesus his false doctrine and he made himself to be God and you said nothing you know you didn't challenge that you know this guy young guy is accusing Nicodemus and Nicodemus makes a statement somewhere in the conversation he says these are all matters of the law. And, and Shamil looks at him, and there's this, like, countenance on him, and he says, the law is God. And, boy, when I heard that, I thought, that's it. That's fundamentalism for you. Yeah. That's fundamentalism to make God equal to law. Well, now hold on before anybody turns the radio off. The law is of God. It is truth. It is right. It is comes from God. But nowhere in Scripture could we, I, I think I'm right in saying this. I'm going to go out on a limb. This may get somebody to write us. <laughs> but where in Scripture does it say God is law, right? It says God, we know Jesus is the Word, mm-hmm. but, but God is love. God is holy. God is truth. God is all these things. But in our mind to equate God as something that is so rigid, so hard, so legal, when what does God require of thee, old man, but to do, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God? Yeah, I think the it's it's. I think it, there's like a broken record that keeps getting put on here. You can I think you can say that that God is His law, but not in the definition that we use it for, because man has so hijacked God's law and interpreted it differently. Of course, God is His word. He he. He, he can't separate from, from his nature and who he is. But when we define his word through our lenses and our interpretations, now we're imposing something on God that was what Jesus was combating with the Pharisees. Well, let's explore that a moment. Okay. Because I think we're going to get some clarity on this. 
And to all listeners, listener discretion is advised. What you are tuning into right now is an open brainstorming disquash. So when we say that God is loving and love is the essence of who God is emanating from him into the world and without it, there would not be love. Can we put law in there and say the same thing? And, and, and I don't let me mislead you on the air right now. So I'm going to, but can we say the law is the essence of who God is emanating from him into the world? I say no. I, okay, good. That's enough. Cause I want to say absolutely right. I agree. Understanding the law is more, I, I'm going to use my terms here, but the law as is given in the scripture, is more of a reflection of God's nature and desire and design. It is not the essence of God emanating into the world like love is. Sure, and I think all you got to do is go back to Genesis chapter number 1, and you see that. Love was in the world long before law was. Law didn't come into play until man had basically boogered everything up, and God had to remind and teach mankind to redirect back to God. Love didn't enter into the equation in Genesis chapter number 3. Love was there right off the bat because that is who God is, and it's always been present. And God being holy and God being love is the reason why God gives law, or to use more New Testament terminology, God gives commandment. Mm-hmm. And because there is commandment, the commandments matter, the Ten Commandments matter, but Jesus talks about the commandments and keeping the commandments, as we'll mention here before we're done. So I think that was a healthy discussion to kind of flesh that out. Let me say one more thing about agape. It is a comprehensive thing or a holistic thing, and by that I mean it's not something that's like a switch that we turn on and off. Well, I love this person, but I I just don't love that person, or I love these people, but I can't love those people. Mm -hmm. How can we say we have agape, but it is limited? Now, I don't mean there is a limit to my agape, okay? That is that I cannot love to the level God loves. I mean, and and yes, with all the frailties and faults of human nature, there are going to be people that it is easier for me to love than others. But I believe this with all my heart. And I know it gets tried and it gets tested in life, and some people have been through far deeper, harder tests. But if that love of God is in you, and it is the essence of God emanating into your life, it has to be there for all people. Even your enemy. Mm-hmm. Love your enemy. What about the person that does you wrong? What about the person that literally brings destruction into your life? Can you love that person? Now, it may be more difficult. It may be something that you resist because your own will combats it. But we're talking postgraduate level Christianity here. Love your enemy. Worst case scenario, someone murders your child, your spouse. Can you love that person? See, this is the work of God in making us or helping us become who we're made to be in Christ. Now, you may think, as you listen and think on that, I just don't know. I, I mean, you're being honest. You're like, I just don't know. I want to tell you one thing. Honesty is better than flat out just masquerading as, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would definitely love them. It would be hard, but I would love them. Yeah. To that I say baloney. <laughs> well, the, the masquerade's baloney. Yes. But the Jesus in us, the agape in us, 
we will, I think, be very amazed at what God can accomplish in us when we have yielded over to him, when we've surrendered everything to let his love dominate. But you don't get that parading around your righteousness. No. You only get that by being like, I don't know how on earth I do this. I, yeah. that, I, I, I can't do that because that's the key. You can't. But Jesus in you can. Yeah, I mean, and you can't do that living at faith level, right? Like just like, like I believe in Jesus. I'm a I'm a Christian. Well, let's see how far that takes you. I mean, when you well, we don't even have to go this far. Like you back down the list. Like, well, how's that? How's that working out in your daily intimate love of Jesus? Because yeah. that's where knowledge is. Let's talk about temperance. How are you doing controlling those bad habits of your life? You know what are you doing? How many how many hours of television did you spend, or or on or on your social media this week? Right. So I mean, there's all kind of things. Those are like child's play things compared to this. So again, friends, listeners, we're talking major stuff here, but this is what God is helping us to become, and praise God for it. So uh, it's not limited to certain people. I said that. It is an overall disposition of the human soul and one which can only be reached through and by the love of God at work in us. 1 John 4, 9-12. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another... God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. And if we read that with what we just talked about, we understand that the capability, the possibility of love only exists because God is in us. But because God is in us, it exists. Mm -hmm. And it can be done, and it will be done, and to God be the glory for it. Absolutely. Well, as is customary for us, we're running out of time. But let's take our last couple of minutes or so, and let's answer the question, how is agape cultivated and added in our life? And uh, I don't know why I've got stuck on four things every time we do this, but I, I wrote down four things that we won't have time to develop. One day we'll write a book about this and we'll flesh them all out. But I think number one is what we've been saying every time. It's still a matter of requiring all diligence. Is it not a matter of requiring all diligence in this area? Deliberate, purposeful living. All right. Number two, as it is also a fruit of the Spirit, we need to pray for this. We need to pray. We need to say, God, give me your love. Give me more of your love. Lord, enlarge my heart for more of your love to be real and manifested in me. Now, the third thing I wrote down is obey God's commandments. And I just want to make the point. I'll mention a couple of references. I won't read the verses. But you just think of the top two commandments, right? What are the top two commandments, Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right? So even the the, the top commandments are based in love. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the New Testament has a direct and persistent connection drawn between growing and living in agape and obedience to God's word. So look them up. John 14, 21 through 23. Jesus said, love, if you love me, obey me, you know, keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 3 and 5, that connects that loving God with obeying his word. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God. We keep his commandments. 1 Timothy 1.5, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart of good conscience and faith unfeigned. So there is a connection between obeying God's word and growing in agape. So if you're going to add to your faith uh, uh, this agape, obedience to God's word, his commandments is a part of it. The fourth thing I wrote down is credit to you where it's due. Practice makes progress. That's what I thought about. You said that yesterday. Mm -hmm. 
Practice makes progress, and what I mean by that is you've got to go out and love other people on purpose. We are overcoming all kinds of junk in our heart and in our mind when we're trying to do this. The love is there. God's love is in the believer, but we've got to exercise it, and we've got to go out and love other people on purpose. Peter says, referring to all this we've been studying after you've added to your faith all of these things, he says, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That'll be my key verse that I want to highlight today. But reading on, he says, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about those verses in a moment, and I want to, I want to give you three words that I think summarize uh, what Peter is offering us there. But before we do that, there's a question that came into my mind that I think is worth answering, because we have spent now, we think, what is this, eight, seven, eight, nine broadcasts on these yeah, verses. somewhere around there. So somebody might be thinking the same thing. Why give so much time to this? And I look at Peter writing about this, and I say, why is Peter so emphatic about what he's saying here in this opening? Because this is a strong start to his letter. I mean, this is powerful. And he's pressing it. He is, he is pressing it, and he's promising to continue pressing it. And that, you see, in verse 13, he says, Yeah, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle, this, this old body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in your remembrance. And so he says, I am pressing this, and I'm going to continue to press this as long as I can. And so why? Why is it so important to Peter? Now I have three reasons that I think come out of those verses I just read, verse 13 through 15, that I think you know, are, are very valid, and to us who are ministers, whether you are a pastor, a missionary, a Sunday school teacher, a parent who's trying to raise their child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, a, a deacon, a usher, whoever, but you're ministering to people by your sharing of your faith and sharing of your the divine nature that's been imparted to you, these apply to us. Okay, so number one, Peter's emphatic and he's pressing this because he knows that this is real legacy. In other words, he knows that what he the best thing he can leave behind after he's gone is helping others find this true life in Jesus, helping them get something beyond the normal baseline. He wants to see a people that, ha that are more than just, hey, we're so-and-so Baptist or so-and-so Methodist, we go to church at such-and-such such thing, and that's really all they've got. Like They know their sins are forgiven, and they know they're going to heaven. But other than that, they're just kind of here. And Peter says, I don't want that for you. That is n that's not why I, I've been working in this ministry. That's not why I've been preaching and teaching. And it takes us back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. You know, this is an exciting verse. It's hard to read this verse and not read it the way I'm about to. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Now, how many people sit in church on a regular Sunday morning and you would think by watching them and listening to them that they have a lively hope? 
we not don't, many. You, you, you can plead <laughs> the fifth. You can plead the fifth. But that's what I think Peter's, like his heart beats for that. Folks, this is what we have received in Christ. And, and I want you to have this. And the legacy I want to leave behind is, is to give you something that will help you in moving into this true life that Jesus is offering. Yeah, not a, a superficial or, or artificial joy. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of people that are excited in church and that oh, I've got a lively hope, but it's a very shallow, showy type excitement. And then you've seen some people that they're not they're not bouncing off the walls or swinging from the chandeliers, but when you get around them, they are just radiating this mm-hmm. joy and hope. And and so it's not really the outward portrayal of quote-unquote excitement that we're looking for, and that's not what Peter was stirring up. He was stirring up something genuine, something that is going to move you to effective action and continual joy in spite of all the persecutions and tribulations like he talks about at the end of, first, of, of his first letter. This, this is going to happen if you're on this path, but you can enjoy this, and it's going to matter and leave this lasting impact long after you're dead and gone. That's something to be excited about, because how many people in the world are going through scrambling for any kind of relevance in life, wanting to leave a lasting impact, and they're going to die and be forgotten? And what he is describing to us is, this is how, after you're long dead and forgotten, and nobody knows your name anymore, this is how you for your life to continue to make an impact throughout eternity. Yeah, we have learned to equate rejoicing with what we see in the stadiums and the coliseums. And we hear that exact analogy preached from the pulpits a lot of times. Yeah, but I tell you, you you, you really have an experience of rejoicing in the Lord. A lot of times it's the exact opposite of that. I mean, it is a stirring that just, I mean, really just about wants to flatten you, not cause yep. you to, you know, shout and, you know, you know scream. Rah, and, rah, yeah. and hoot and holler. But anyway. To each his own, as his personality displays his love of God. But the second thing, I think, or the second reason Peter's pressing this is he also knows how easy it is to forget what we know. And that's why he's saying, I'm going to put this in remembrance. And even though you know it, I'm going to keep putting it in remembrance. It's, it's difficult living in a world that's filled with distractions and allurements and enticements, and we are living in that more than ever. And I, I won't read all this for sake of time, but I would just reference the listener to chapter 3 of this letter and verse 10 through 15 because that's where Peter says, in a nutshell, he says, you know, considering that this old world and everything in it is going to be burned up and dissolved, what kind of life should we be living in all holiness and godliness looking for the coming of Christ? That should be what motivates us. We should be willing to let go of any and everything that would get in the way of that kind of a heart for God. And so Peter's really, he's saying, I I know, I've got to remind you because even when we love God with all our heart, man, there's the next thing that pops up on the radar that gets our attention and we start thinking about wanting that. And so all of a sudden our heart begins to drift. I'm just going to keep on reminding. So again, ministers, we have to just keep putting it out there because if you think about the day and age we're living in, man, we've really got to combat that. Mm-hmm. We are we have a lot of opposing forces out there trying to get the hearts and minds and attentions of the people in the churches. Yeah, our focus is so critical. I find myself having this conversation, especially with my oldest son, quite often. I'll try to give him instructions, and I, I can see his, his eyes are all over the place. And I know if he's not looking at me straight in the eyes, he's going to leave this conversation and forget. Like a goldfish. Yep, forget everything <laughs> we just talked about. And so I'm constantly like, hey, look at me. Pay attention, pay attention. And then it's not 
five minutes later, I've told him, hey, go pick up your cars in your bedroom. And it's within like seconds. I'm walking in. And he's not I'm like, hey, buddy, what, what are you doing? What did I tell you to do? Oh, I, I forgot. And we'll have this conversation multiple different times. And it is easy for me to get frustrated because I'm like, I shouldn't have to tell you this 15 different times. And then how many times I'm having to be reminded of the truth in Scripture and thankfully having the Spirit of God and the writers of Scripture that are constantly putting me in remembrance of the stuff that I've already been told multiple times and yet am so prone to forget because we get focused on so much other stuff that it's not malicious or intentional. We literally just forget God or forget what we're supposed to be doing, and we have to intentionally remember. Well, the third reason that I think he's pressing this is that he knows his time is not forever. And and maybe it's another way of saying the first thing, but maybe the emphasis is a little different. He knows that his time is not forever. He says, you know, I've, I know I've got to put off this tabernacle. The Lord said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be passing away. I'm not going to be here forever. But he wants them to be grown-up believers who know how to pursue the knowledge of God themselves. So not only is he wanting them to be introduced into this this way, but he wants them to know how to keep going in it and not be babes in Christ. Again, going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 2, he said, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. But it doesn't stop there. It says that ye may grow thereby. And Peter's really wanting these, these Christians to not only be babes that, that desire the milk of the word, that's a great thing, but that they're learning how to grow by this. And so that brings us to the whole concept of adding to our faith. Now, those are the three reasons I believe Peter is so emphatic and pressing this. But as we close this thing out, I think there are three things in the closing um, that we can kind of take away as a, as a kind of a wrapping up sort of exhortation as we go out the door. And I, I, three words I wrote down, incentive, instruction, and intention. So let me break that down. First of all, he is giving us incentive to keep adding in verse number 8. He says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. Another way of saying that, Peter says, if you'll do this, if you'll add to your faith, if you'll keep growing, you won't be useless. You won't be useless to the kingdom. You won't be useless to the gospel. You won't be useless to your church. You won't be useless to your family. You won't be useless to your coworkers. But you're going to become a productive, valuable person to have around. Mm -hmm. You know, you can overlook a whole lot of stuff in an employee if that is that employee is a producer. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there's some things can't be overlooked. But let's just say that, you know, they're not the – I mean, I've worked with people before that – kind of grumpy you know I'm thinking of some guys that I worked with when I was a young man a teenager and, and into my early adult years and I'm thinking of some guys that worked at the place that my dad you know worked his whole life in and man they were grumpy they were grouches I, you, you just you walk by them you don't know what you're going to get but they were the best workers in the place and I mean when it came down to what needed to be done and having knowledge of what needed to be done you go to them because they know and they were usually glad to share and help with that and, and, and I'm just making the point that that we want to be the kind of person that people want us around because we we have something to offer. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't want to be continuous grumps either. And I think as we grow in the Lord, we're growing in graciousness and kindness, right? It's part of it, that godliness part. But anyway, that that's one of the things. There's incentive there to keep adding because it's going to make you a fruitful person for the kingdom. Yeah, because, again, nobody wants to come to their end of their life and have contributed nothing or 
been a leech their whole entire life. You know, I think we hide behind that mask and we we have like a false humility of, well, I just don't have much to offer. So I'm just going to stay out of the way and I'm just going to stand in the shadows. But really what's that what that's doing is it is revealing the craving that we have to man I really wish I could contribute. Mm-hmm. I really want to be able to step up and and be productive and and be valuable. Peter's given us the tools of this is how you're valuable regardless of your quote unquote perceived talents or abilities. This is what enables you to come to the church, to the community, to your life and have something to offer. So if you want it keep adding. That's the point. Now, secondly, is the word instruction, and he's also giving us instruction on adding here. And so if we say, yep, I, I get it. I need to keep adding to my faith and growing in this. Well, here's the last piece of instruction on that. He says, if these things be in you and abound. Now, what that means is, Peter is saying, if you have these qualities of the divine nature and they are increasing in measure over time. So think about that. We've, we've, we've been discussing, this is all about a process of becoming. So it's not that you look at yourself and say, well, I don't have that, or I'm not like them, or I, you know, I haven't reached this certain level. The instruction on adding is just let these things be in you and let them keep increasing. Just keep growing. And then thirdly, the third word that I wrote down is intention. So we've got the incentive to keep adding, the instruction on how to keep adding, but here's some in, in, here's some intention on basically the reason or the goal for adding, and that's the end of verse 8, simply in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that Peter brings that back because we don't want to forget that. That's what it is about. We're going to talk in just a moment about spiritual disciplines, but you know, spiritual disciplines are not about, they're not the end in themselves. So I, I don't I don't go to church just so, so I can say I go to church. I don't read my Bible just so I can say I'm a Bible reader. And we don't pursue this stuff just to say, yep, I do that. I'm that kind of, I'm a grower. I'm an adder, <laughs> right? We, what do we do? We're, we're doing it so that we're increasing in the knowledge of Jesus. And we've tried to establish not increasing in facts, not in knowing the facts about Jesus, but in getting to know Jesus, intimate experiential knowledge. There's life with between me and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the incentive or the goal that we're after as we do these things. Now, I said, this is where the spiritual practices come into play, the spiritual disciplines. To, to borrow your coined phrase, the practices that make progress, right? Which that could be a subtitle to this whole discussion. Now, I was thinking about that. I mentioned our Way of Holiness conference is coming up and... Our theme for the Way of Holiness Conference is slow your pace, shrink your world, shepherd your heart. And I was thinking about that this morning, and I thought, what's working for me right now? If someone were to ask me, hey, in, in terms of, um, of this whole thing of 2 Peter 1, you, you know, you've been teaching on this, what's helping you add to your faith? What's helping you add to your virtue and to your knowledge and your temperance and your patience and all? What's helping you? And, and in terms of spiritual disciplines, what's really making a difference right now? And as I thought about that, I started writing some things down. You know, we, we talk about this a lot, but I came up with a list of five things. And they, this, is, this is great for the teachers out there. They all start with an M. Hmm. I mean, I'm on an alliteration roll today. Sure are. Yeah. S's, I's, M's. Did I have S's too? Well, S's is what led us all throughout the, the different adding to your things. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. hadn't said that lately, but rewind and look it up. But yeah, so I, I wrote down five things. You know, what's helping me? And and I'll pose the question to you too. Once I share these, I'll just share them quickly. But if I'm if I share what was helping me right now, what's working in my life to help me add to my faith and so forth. First thing I wrote down: morning prayer, and that's number one. That is hands down number one. There is nothing else I would say that comes close to that. Now, to the person listening who says, well, okay, that sounds right, but I don't get it because morning prayer doesn't work very well for me. It's probably just a lack of understanding what your morning prayer should be. If And I know we've said these things before, but if, you, if you're sitting down in your favorite chair and your morning prayer consists of pulling out a prayer list or trying to think really hard of all the people and problems you should be praying about and then reading a chapter of your Bible, I'm pretty sure you're not getting a lot out of mm-hmm. that. Matter of fact, if you're in your nice, comfortable chair, you, you might even find yourself waking up a lot. Yeah. And so the discouragement sets in. But I would tell you, if you learn to do morning prayer the right way, and, and we don't have time to unpack all that now, it is without doubt the most important thing. It sets up the day. Yeah, and I think with me on that, what I have learned and have, have tried to apply more is not to rush into talking. I caught myself even doing that earlier in one of our prayer times here at the church. But it's like, okay, it's prayer time, and so I'm getting right into prayer, and I find myself talking, and, and I had to stop and say, wow, hold on a minute. I don't need to talk right now. Right now I just need to settle in and listen. And in our morning prayer, that's what we're doing. We're just we're starting our day, and we're settling into our focus on God, not to— rush straight to conversation and prayers and supplications and intercessions and all that kind of stuff, but just to be with God and to start our day with Him is is a truly wonderful thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, slowing down, well, that's slow your pace right mm-hmm. there. Secondly, I wrote down meditation, meditation on Scripture and on teaching. And what I mean by that is is taking verses or the passage that I read and that I, I got some help out of, you know, in that morning prayer, and thinking on that throughout the day, a lot of times it turns into doing things like this, where I'm meditating on this for now two and a half weeks mm-hmm. from a morning prayer time, and then meditating on teaching. You know, I have certain people that I listen to. Again, as a pastor, you're primarily the one doing most of the preaching and teaching in the church on a given service. But I, too, need to be taught. I, too, need to listen. And so I have men that I listen to, and I will meditate on the things that they have taught and that I've heard. And that's been a very helpful practice in my life. Number three, ministering to others. That's a big one. And, And as I was thinking on this, it came pretty quickly. When I think about not only the work of serving in the church and serving the people through teaching or through praying with people or counseling, but then just making visits, you know, visiting people in the hospital, in their home. Don't do enough of that. But I tell you, I try to be in the places where I really feel like there's a, a call and an urge and a need to be, and it's always helpful. It, I'm, I'm saying it helps me. Now, I, I hope it's helping them, but it helps me mm-hmm. to be there. This is working in my life to, to grow and add to my faith and, you know, ministering through outreach in the community, all those things. Number four, I wrote down music, music that leads into worship. And so that is a big thing. And I think I said this in the church not too awful long ago, but I found or came to a place where I realized I wasn't listening to music and, 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 and worship music as much as I had been in the past because I had got so deeply involved in learning and meditation and studying the Word of God and seeking that knowledge 
But that's an element we can't not we can't overlook it and we can't leave it. And just bringing that back into and I mean I I know some people that when they got their radio on in the car, they're listening to gospel music or whatever. So they're getting like, you know, an hour of it a day. I may not get that much. But even if I get ten minutes of it on a drive, like I decide that today driving from, you know, the church to the house, I'm gonna listen to worship music. That ten minutes added back into my life has been very helpful. Sure. And I'd ask you this, because I think a lot of people that, well, yeah, I listen to gospel music all the time in the car. There's a difference in listening to it and having it on as background noise. Mm-hmm. You know, your mind's focused on here, there, and yonder. You're having a phone or you're on the phone with somebody and the music's playing or you've got somebody in the car. There's a difference in having it on as background noise. That's, I guess there's probably some value in that, but it's different to listen to it on purpose and to be actively engaged in listening and allowing your heart and mind to be drawn into worship as well. Which we should also add to that. There's also a difference in Christian music and worship music. Yes. There's a lot of Christian music that really will not draw you into worship. It is only good for background noise, frankly. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't stir our heart to a love of Christ, to the wonder of God. It's got a rhythm, and it's got rhyme, and that's all it's got. Yep. And it, it won't help you. So you got to be discerning about that. Uh, the fifth thing I wrote down was maintenance. And here's what I mean by that. Maintaining consistency in all the above. And I've found that inconsistency is such a problem in people's lives, no matter what disciplines we're talking about. Now, for me, for example, I don't do good with maintenance on, like, material stuff. You know, my, my, my car may need an oil change, and it might have needed it 2,000 miles ago. <laughs> I'm going to get there. You know, I'm bad about that. Like, you know, my lawnmower, my lawnmower needs an oil change or my lawnmower's had, my lawnmower recently had a flat tire. Well, it had a flat tire all last season. I would just pump it up and it would go for a couple more weeks. It got worse and I put a can of fix a flat in it. Well, you know what? It finally got so bad, the tire <laughs> came off the wheel and I had to fix it. Yeah. I'm not real good at some of that. And I admit it, but when it comes to my soul I, and it's all by grace, but I thank the Lord for helping me develop the routine maintenance in my life and it has to be routine and it also has to be responsive because the routine's really good but sometimes certain things will cause you to have an extra like this greater need like in the moment and you have to learn how to slip away out of things and, and deal with what's needed in our sure. heart in that time so those are things that are working for me and again the reason we bring those up all those practices are what help us to do this adding to our faith now i'll tell you this we're out of time if you take verse 9 10 and 11 and just, just take a note. If you're a listener, you can write this down. Just take a note. I, I would like you to look at this yourself. Notice how I gave incentive, instruction, and in, intention. But notice how verse 9 matches incentive. Notice how verse 10 will go along with the instruction. And notice how verse 11 will go along with the intention. And he fleshes all that out a little better. Wish I had time to deal with it, but I know we're out of time. So that's your homework, dear listener. And uh, we'll see you next time. In the heart of a champion, there is a fire. And the flames are controlled by burning desire. To be the best you can be. heart
in the heart of a champion.